welcome everyone uh, back to another episode of Rose Buzz. Um, I'm Sam. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Literatures and English, um, and I am the Graduate Resident Fellow in Mendenhall. And I'm Tom, or Thomas. I'm a PhD student in music and a Graduate Residence Fellow in Rose Main, for those of you who don't know me. So um, today we're very lucky uh, to be in conversation with our house fellows, Curly and Dan, um, two Cornell professors from the Department of Literatures and English. Um, so uh, we'll let them quickly uh, introduce themselves uh, and then we'll get started with the interview. Yeah, I'd also like to thank you both for agreeing to come and speak to us today. It's a privilege for us to have you as house fellows as well. Um, so some of our residents may not have seen you, either of you before at our house events or house dinners we used to have pre-COVID times. So if you could please both introduce yourselves, that would be great. Um, Professor Samuels, would you like to go first? Sure. I mean, one relevant thing is that once upon a time, I was the house professor of Flora Rose House. So in fact, um, the first house professor, and I, I spent some time in the apartment that Rosemary Avery has now so beautifully decorated. And I met students and of course the dining room and I coordinated events and I, you know, drew on my resources at Cornell to attempt to attract house fellows. So many of the things that you've all been living with, except I didn't have a pandemic. I'm sorry. I am so sorry. I didn't have to live with that. I got to see people in person. So I've been teaching at Cornell for a long time. I mostly, uh, when it comes right down to it, an American studies scholar, which is interdisciplinary relations of history, literature, art, uh, to some extent music, you know, gesturing toward Tom. I have been uh, many, played many roles. I was the director of what was then women's studies. I was the chair of the history of art department. I'm currently the director of undergraduate studies for American studies. And I've done things like teach in the Cornell and Washington program. There are many parts of Cornell that I've kind of moved around. I used to joke about it, like clean up on aisle nine. I, I've enjoyed the flexibility that I've had because it's given me um, a strong sense of appreciating Cornell, I'll say that. And I'm, I'm happy to be here for those reasons, but also the ability to keep my imagination challenged. Most of my work is in the 19th century United States. So I've published books on people like Abraham Lincoln. My most recent edited book is on race and vision in the 19th century United States. Uh, I've also written on the Civil War, a book called Facing America, Iconography in the Civil War. And I am still working on another book, which you can ask me about. Dan, I think it's over to you. It's over to me, okay. Well, uh, I'm signed of the Tom Brady of the English department. I've taught here for 53 years. I'm very proud to, uh, of my teaching. I, I'm a Weiss fellow and uh, the person who asked me to be part of this Rose House is the person uh, who just spoke. I was uh, one of the early fellows here and I've been a fellow straight through. I'm very privileged to be part of uh, that Rose House. My uh, feeling, I teach now because I love teaching. I've written 
many books uh, and uh, on things as different as the New York Times, New York City culture, uh, Benjamin Disraeli, Conrad Joyce. But uh, the thing that I care most about is uh, teaching. And uh, what I say to my students now is I'm here for you. I'm here really on, uh, I feel it's a blessing to be teaching as I approach 80. That's my, mo the activity I'm proudest of, even though I've won, as Grace Shirley has, national grants and things like that. I think as I come home uh, in my own career thinking, as I finished the odyssey of teaching, I think that that's really been working with students here and learning from them and being there for them and interacting for them has been really important. So while I've had pretty strong recognition as a scholar and had a volume in my honor called The Festrift, the thing I'm most proud of is a conference that we had in my honor for my 50th year here. Um, I, my mantra as a scholar is to try to balance historicism and, and close reading. So I sometimes associated with the phrase, always the text, always historicize. I try to balance those two. And once in some of the areas that I teach in, I teach in, I teach in, uh, in Jewish studies and Holocaust studies, and I, I teach a course called Imagining the Holocaust about books and films in the Holocaust and other things that I teach. I teach um, modern literature, modern European literature, and I also teach, um, I specialize in people like James Joyce. I have a course now which is twice as big as I expected in James Joyce's Ulysses. So what I would say is, uh, I think Shirley and I have introduced ourselves for a minute, a couple of minutes each, and now let's see what happens next. Okay, so the first question is mine to Professor Schwartz. And um, I'd like to ask that, um, well, first we should say, obviously at Rose House, most of our, well, all of our residents except staff are undergrads. So I'd like to ask about your own time as an undergrad, if that's okay. I know you studied at uh, Union College, not too far from here, and you spent your junior year kind of in, in my neck of the woods in Scotland, I suppose, at Edinburgh University, I believe. So what would you say was the most transformative educational experience you had as an undergrad? And what was it that made it so powerful? And how does it continue to well, I had a kind of connection to the Cornell six-year PhD program because Union had a, was the, uh, the undergraduate version of that. It was like a three-year program. Uh, they had this term, which we used to joke about calling us expendables, but they recruited, uh, it was actually extendables. And they had 10 people that they recruited from around the country. Uh, but actually they wouldn't let me do the junior year and do just two years there. So I ended up staying four. I guess that was the junior year board for me was, I consider what I call my intellectual and personal bar mitzvah for those that I did. That was a growing up year. And in those days there wasn't email and telephones. I was all by myself and I bought a little car and drove around Europe. So I would say that was, that was the most transformative experience. I liked college, I liked studying. Uh, I was, uh, and, um, but I think uh, opening the doors to the world 
since I, I've been to 104 countries and travel has been my way of learning. I mean, I, we, there's now a, a part of the studies of literature that's world literature, but I often feel that some of these people have no idea what the world looks like. That, so that, that realization that you learn from traveling, from talking to people, from putting yourself in situations where you're in different cultures, there was a much more varied <laughs> ethnic group there. There were students at Edinburgh where I studied from Africa, from Asia. And so it was really a, a tremendous learning experience. And I, whatever I've accomplished since then, I probably owe a great deal to that. I learned in college that I loved reading, that I loved writing, uh, that I loved thinking, I love intellectual challenges. And I think my own, the one gift that I think I have, and I think I really learned this at a very strong high school, is intellectual curiosity. Even now, I, if I don't know something, I have to find it out. I just, you know, I'm kind of driven to, to know. So Shirley, what was the most transformative educational experience that you had as an undergraduate? Um, what was it that made the experience so powerful? Maybe how does it continue to impact you today? I'm taking a deep breath because the it's always it's awkward to say this. I went to college very young and I graduated when I was 19. And I had uh, I also became independent and worked my way through college, which is not something you could do now. I had the fortune of going to what was then an inexpensive public school, um, by which I mean the University of California at Berkeley, which is a prestigious place. But at the time, my fees were so low that I could concentrate on getting food, if you follow what I mean. That is, I could pay the fees and then I worked, I worked nights. Um, and I had uh, a lot of sort of shifting engagement with, so, so the, the long-term value of that is that there's a very, I have a very strong practical streak, which enabled me to survive graduate school when I got to graduate school because I always knew I could work. I went, I went to work full-time um, before I went to graduate school and I knew how to do that. And so I wasn't as afraid as graduate students often are about what might happen if the floor gave way beneath me and I failed somewhere along the way. It's like, okay, I go to work because I knew how to work. So that's a that's a, a, a perversely different comment than the one that Dan Schwartz is making in that I had a great deal of curiosity, but a lot of the curiosity was about how to survive. And I started off being very interested in biology and art. And then I became a psychology major. And then it's sort of at the last minute, I was like, wait a minute, what I'm doing all the time is reading and writing. So let's go there. So I changed my major several times. I changed what I was doing several times. I, I, I try not to make a bigger deal about it, but it was very, very difficult. That is working, working 20 hours a week, going to school full time. And I, when I finished, in fact, my last year, they gave me a fellowship and it was like, wow, what's that? You know, what is a fellowship? So I put the money in the bank. I kept working and I used it to go to Europe because obviously I had no money, but they gave me a fellowship and I used it to, to also go to Europe and to do a lot of traveling. And that was also very helpful. 
so that that business about growing up in a way came after right after I graduated but I graduated very young I think um, professor Samuels touched on the the next question that we're we're, we're interested in and we know you both have a deep interest in English literature and um, Professor Swartz, I know you have an extensive bibliography and you've worked on many boards for journals in literature you know, more, more broadly. And um, I wonder what was the, the interest, uh, the kind of initial inspiration for you to explore this at Brown University for your MA and PhD? I thought of two careers. Uh, one was to be a lawyer uh, and the other was to be a professor. And when I was in, in Edinburgh, uh, I realized that I wanted to be a professor. That was also happened. I was encouraged there. And I was in a, uh, I, I was, I realized I could do this as well as anybody else in the, that program. And I loved reading and writing. And the second thing was, honestly, when I finished, this goes, yeah, this has to do with American history. Uh, which Shirley probably will recognize. When I finished college, the Vietnam War was starting. And to go to graduate school, because there was a dearth of college professors, as opposed to now, uh, they gave us a, a, a deferment. So it was, it, that helped make the choice. And later on, I also had, I had two deferments, a marital deferment too. Later on, that was taken away. I had no deferments. And uh, that resulted in my first child sooner than maybe we wanted. Um, but I, I liked graduate school. I liked learning. Uh, uh, I just uh, liked the independence really, even though I was within a program, I felt that most of the time I could read what I want, do what I want, think about what I wanted. And I guess I found my way. I was in actually a kind of innovative program the, in English and American literature, when I went into it, people studied centuries, like you were a romanticist or you were a Victorianist. And so I was really in the first program that did what was called novelist genre. And so that, so that made me, I, and I was really the first person who came out of that program. So I never even tell my graduate students what the job market was like, but I was kind of in demand and a hot property because nobody else did this. In fact, some of the old timers here thought that that was rather a peculiar way to study things. And I had, uh, I think part of getting tenure was really making people understand what I was doing through my publications because I was really very much a formalist at that time. The always historicized, I wasn't doing as much as formal analysis. So, but for the students, what that means is you think about the, the work as a work of art and you don't worry too much about the historical pressure on the work and, the, the, and uh, I've moved to much more historicism. What you learn in graduate school, I think is both, do you like teaching? Because I, I found that one of the, probably the highlight of graduate school for me was the teaching component. And I got very lucky around my second or year or the second year teaching. So maybe it was my third year. Uh, one of the professors had a heart attack and they asked what, and so they needed to cover sort of a, a course that was given that majors had to take. Uh, and by good fortune, they chose me to do that. 
So I kind of wasn't teaching freshman, the, you know, the basic writing anymore. And this was a gift that was given to me. I'm sure some of the other graduate students weren't, who had been there for years were surprised, but so a very famous scholar gave me that gift. And I, once I did it, they let me keep doing it. So I was working with some very, actually some of the people who when my freshman classes became famous scholars, believe it or not. Um, Marion Hirsch, Ma Maria Paxoto. So I think that the teaching is what really I cared about. I did not really know that I was gonna write nine, 18 or 19 books or that was, what took me into this was really the teaching. I have an incredible love of talking to young people, learning from them, introducing them to subjects and, uh, that's why I'm still doing this, really. I, I, I'm just passionate about working with young people and talking to them about what, about not what I do, but what about literature and opening their, teaching students to write lucidly, to think precisely, to read powerfully. And I also try to emphasize more than some people developing their ability to speak because most jobs require you to be articulate. But these things of working with students and also getting them to love what I love. And one of the, the last thing, one of the things I share with Shirley is we both do kind of art and literature. And I think we're among, right, Shirley, of the few people in the department who, do, do, who does that. And I've written a book about the relationship between art and literature. And Shirley is also very strong on that. And that kind of interdisciplinary thing is extremely important. Uh, and the next time maybe I'll talk, like Shirley said, ask me about her, her current book, ask me about my current book too. Yeah, so Shirley, sort of along the, the same lines, um, you talked a little bit about sort of coming to the study of, of literature through just a love of, of reading and writing or the fact that you were doing it all the time. Um, but maybe like, was there a moment in undergrad when you realized that your, your interests uh, started to veer towards what you're currently studying um, and sort of along those lines, when and why did you decide to become a professor? Like when did that kind of come into the picture as a, as a career path? Well, some, some students who study literature may have heard of the poet Seamus Heaney, the Irish poet who got a Nobel Prize, which kind of made him stand out. By the time I knew him, he was not famous Seamus as he became. He was simply somebody teaching poetry at Berkeley and I took classes with him. And um, and he said to the students, because of course he was not then so famous and he was a lovely person, come see me in Dublin. And in my travels, I went to see him in Dublin. And um, so classically, this will mean something to people who've been to Dublin. We were standing on a bridge over the River Liffey and he said, you know, you should go to graduate school. I can't do the Irish accent. You know, you might not always be a poet. You will always have people to talk to. And I love this line, obviously, because it is it speaks to both the desire to teach and, and the, the sort of the horizontal and the vertical axes of what it is to communicate within the university, which is you're, you're speaking across disciplines. You're speaking through the depth of your own discipline. Um, anyways, Seamus Heaney wrote me a letter of recommendation for graduate school, um, which, like, I wish I had it. But when I started, I did not know. I, I was still working nights because I was used to doing that. I did not know if I would stay. Berkeley at the time was intensely competitive in this way. They had almost no fellowships. 
a lot of people were either working or you know doing whatever. And I had strong, strong background in British and Irish literature. And the Berkeley requirement was that you do a whole series of things along the lines of centuries. And if you didn't have the background, you had to take the classes. If you did have the background, you could, could take exams. So I placed out, I didn't, I took exams in British and Irish and all that, but I had to study American literature because I didn't know it. So the problem was that I, once I started studying American literature, I was like, okay, right, that, I wanna do that. And that once I started teaching as part of my life in graduate school, I was like, oh yeah, that, I wanna do that. So I didn't know, I, I was, you know, in a way tricked, let's just say, let's laugh about it, tricked by Seamus Heaney on that bridge over the river Luffy. <laughs> and, and also there was a lot of excitement at the time about Michel Foucault and news. Michel Foucault was also teaching at Berkeley at the time. So I would go to those lectures and there was a great deal of happiness about the starting of the journal representations and all the ways in which that represented a way of com combining, to go back to this, ideas about history and context with deconstruction and close reading. So it's, it definitely set me on a track that I'm kind of still on, although it involves now a lot more attention to race and feminism and sexuality. Thank you very much for those answers. Um, moving on to our, our next question, I, it's related as well, but um, I'll start with Professor Swartz that um, as you alluded to, you've been at Cornell for 53 years. I think you came here in 1968 as an assistant professor. So what made you decide to come to Cornell specifically? I know you said that you had a passion for teaching, but why Cornell? Well, for one thing, was I had a number of offers. A few of them were at some of the tippy places that were known for not offering tenure. So this was a place that you saw, I thought I had a chance. Uh, some of the Harvard, Princeton, and Yale would just would people would come and go. Uh, and the reason, I mean, I so that was why I came here. I mean, I came here because this was the given the, if we factored in tenure and the chance to be at what's called a, re, a research one university, this was the best offer. Although I, there were other places, small colleges where I thought I might fit better. Like I was, in, had an offer from one of the little three. Uh, and uh, that's for the Westerners, Amherst, Williams and Wesleyan. But I did, I came here young, I was 26. I gradually, I got tenure and, I, and I, had, I had some chances to leave here because I wrote a book that got a lot of attention in the 80s. So in fact, uh, Shirley and I were in the same little room writing that. Remember I was writing the humanistic heritage then and, and you and I, would do, we were hogging the, uh, this room where we were working on a Terrac. It was the first computer. It was about four of us who knew how to use it. A couple of the young people, I think I and Jonathan were the only old people doing in there, right? And anyway, um, so I, I um, took this job really because it was the job. I had a baby, I had a wife, and then I got tenure. And uh, people weren't, when, when in those days, you really, at least I was like, what, to very early 30s, people weren't rushing to, uh, to, to make count office to me at that time. That came later, really. I, in the, in when I was in my 40s, I had a number of chances to leave here and I had uh, 
three visiting professorships. I was barely here for, for a while. Uh, I think there was one point I was here out of 18 terms, I was away nine. So uh, between leaves, but then I decided to come back I and mean, it was a good decision and the right decision. And one of the joys of teaching here is really, I teach the children of people I, 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 uh, I've taught and the brothers and the sisters, but I had in my Ulysses class, I often get the children of people who took that class. This is a course on James Joyce's Ulysses for the students. And it's amazing to me actually, how many people have taken that and want to take that. I mean, it's, there are even people who say they came here to take that course. So uh, why I stayed here is because this has been my life. I mean, I, some people move and some stay and I could have left possibly and got some of the things that I have now, like an endowed chair a little bit earlier, but I sort of, uh, my mentor, uh, who was a great professor here, uh, Abram said, stay around. And so I kind of listened to him. And, uh, uh, but I love Cornell. I mean, what I like about Cornell, maybe I should answer it this way. I like the variety of students. I like the diversity of students. There's more, there's always been more class diversity here than there is in some of the other Ivy League schools. We have, uh, and I've enjoyed my graduate students. I taught the first gay student to come out. Uh, I had a black student who went to, when they did this conference in my honor in 218, turned out to be a black nun. Uh, so, I mean, I've had, a, I, I've had, before we had many women faculty, back in the day, I was the person who had a lot of women fa graduate students. So I've had, I've enjoyed the diversity. I've enjoyed, one of the things that I do, probably that's unique, is I keep in touch with four or 500 of my former students. And that's really, really a part of my life. That sounds like, it's not just social, so that if someone wants to work in journalism, I have contacts at the New York Times. If somebody wants to work in publishing, I have contacts at Simon & Schuster. So by keeping in touch with that large group of people, I've been able to help uh, a lot of students. So Shirley, I'm admittedly still reeling from your Seamus Heaney story because it's <laughs> wild. Um, but I, I want to go back to something that you said at, at the end of your last answer, um, which has to do with um, how a lot of your research and teaching now focuses on the intersections of, of race and gender in American literature and, and visual art. Um, and I'm curious about how uh, recent events might, in the U.S. in particular, might have impacted your approach to teaching these subjects. Um, so maybe, in other words, like what is the encounter with American literature and art in the space of the classroom look like in our sort of present moment? No, I really have to take a deep breath because the present moment includes today, which had impeachment hearings going on. And the, let me just point out the very obvious thing that the managers, the impeachment managers are showing videos and video clips. That is, they are reenactors in a sense of the violence that has just taken place in the Capitol. And that, that reenactment, which of course one must imagine is spurring PTSD among the people sitting in those chambers. But that, that reenactment draws on both the narrative tactics and the visual tactics of representing what it means to carry the American flag as a weapon, what it means to carry the American flag and hit people with it. And that for me, 
is not something I'm talking to students about right now because I'm teaching a graduate class and, and I, uh, we're having more discussions about, you know, what is the policy of recovery with women writers who don't necessarily have the politics you would like them to have. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So that's a separate tactic. But I think that the business of the Civil War, I mean, the, the book that I'm working on that I said you could ask me, but here I go, um, is the, the title that I've been working with is Haunted by the Civil War. And I keep thinking about how Civil War reenactors are in a way invoked by the storming of the Capitol, which included people dressed up as Revolutionary War soldiers, as people dressed up as frontiersmen, as people dressed up in some cosplay that I don't even want to begin to understand. But a lot of what they were doing was trying to do political statements in visual terms. And that has been something I have followed basically for most of my career. I mean, the, the first thing I edited was a book uh, called The Culture of Sentiment, Race, Gender, and Sentimentality, um, which is to say in what ways are our emotions stirred by these kinds of representations that are at once political and of course, directly personal. Uh, actually, you, you mentioned on um, diversity and um, you know, gender and race, the, these were important issues to you and you've been a longstanding you know, advocate of that here in Cornell. And you mentioned that's a strong reason what kept you here, this kind of uh, community that you, you, live, you live with here in Cornell and also in Ithaca more broadly. I know you have a longstanding involvement with the community too, especially the, the public library and um, broader kind of Ithaca um, activities. I wonder if perhaps you could talk about this kind of idea of diversity and how this um, environment has kept you, kept you here for so long. Well, we're always learning. Uh, I mean, you, mentioned, you made me smile when you mentioned the library, because I think somebody like me who's been here this long should participate in the community. I would like more of my colleagues to do that. Uh, you know, I, you know we've, Marsha and I have been able to give a room, dedicate a room to the library and we have this active book fund. But the idea is it's the people are, don't have access to the public library. And that's a kind of socioeconomic diversity that is extremely important. Um, diversity, we're always learning about diversity. We're learning about uh, new kinds of, vi uh, of uh, disability. Uh, uh, we are learning about, I'm learning the last few years a great deal about transsexuals, partly because uh, three, I've had three transsexuals, one a student that was very close to me who's now doing a PhD at Princeton. And, um, and, uh, she, uh, Oh, and then, and then I've had, and I've also in my own life, one of my my great niece at six years old became a great nephew. They are actually not using the that that's their description. They're not they're, they want he, he's a he, but you know the the idea is you meet have new experience, you have new uh, students with different problems, so that you part of what keeps me young is growing and learning from the students about what life looks like. And of course, this is a, I mean, diversity also takes the form of the same person looking at things quite differently. And so we are growing and learning. We're living through, as we people cliche, a fraught time. Shirley has mentioned 
the challenge to democracy, really, that the, which the which the impeachment is part of, really. But the real this we really have had a democracy in the country that I've lived in for 79 years and when I, to which my parents came and my grandparents came and my great grandparents back going back to 18, 1860 is really that, that this world of opportunity and possibility is very much threatened right now. I mean, diversity is also everybody having opportunity. All of us, even our, our, our opportunities to live in a country that has the opportunity and possibility and uh, count, but also the idea that we vote and we, the votes count. And then, then that we live in a land that, and, and that's part of possibility and opportunity. It's not even limited to, to it, it's all of us having that diversity because the opposite, opposite of diversity is fascism. Where everybody, where I, one of my fields is um, the Holocaust, and what what that what happens? Uh, I've just been watching a series called Babylon Berlin. Everybody starts to wear brown shirts. Everybody says the same thing when they meet. So this is the world that Trump has opened the door to, and I think it's important to see that threat to democracy really. I mean, one of the things that I've had a chance to do quite a bit for a variety of reasons is go on the air because of my Times book. I used to go on the air once a month and talk about politics and blah, blah. So I'm very concerned with this country. And I think, uh, I mean, even as, just to talk about diversity, who got the shots from the, the first? Well, it turns out almost everybody I knew got a shot by the first 15th of January. I mean, like I was late at the 19th, at the 22nd. This is all about class. This is about your right, right? What, who's, who's not getting the shots? Black people, physically people, people who, are, who are, are savvy and know how to work the system, people who don't have, the, have, have access to computers. Somebody's going to write a very good essay about the pecking order for shots, for vaccine. This is a really important issue. I asked my friends from all over the country, when did they get their shots? Some of them had two shots by the 5th of January. And I happen to know, I mean, I don't know all of it, but some people are obviously had incredible stories to jump the line and got help from. And so this is part of the challenge of democracy, that everybody has a fair playing field. That's what we're talking about. So I heard heard at the beginning of of Dan, your response, this emphasis on, on sort of lifelong learning. And um, one of the things that I, I wanted to ask you, Shirley, was you had mentioned these different roles that, that you've um, sort of played while at, at Cornell. And <laughs> there were quite a few of them and, and spanning a great number of, of departments and, and different fields. And I'm wondering if, if sort of there's a, a kind of a most important lesson or, or maybe one of those interesting things or valuable things that you've learned in your time um, at Cornell, especially, um, that has shaped your involvement in those different roles? Well, I mean, the example that immediately comes to mind is the first thing I had to do when I became chair of the History of Art Department was to conduct a search for a classical archeologist. Believe me, that is rather far from what I thought I knew anything about. And indeed, 
so the applications were coming in with graphs and charts and languages I didn't know, Greek, sorry, don't know it. Um, and I discovered to my, to my pleasure, first of all, that I really enjoyed that search, that I found what people were doing was completely fascinating for reasons that I can give you an easy example of that too, but for reasons that are both obvious and not so obvious. Um, one of the obvious things is that having a good conversation with somebody is the essence of doing interviews. That is having a conversation where you open up ideas. Um, but then also there was an ethical test that we built into the interviewing practice, which is the policy of reparations and uh, in what way do assumptions about Western superiority govern how museums operate when they say, you know, we have to hold on to these, you know, they're fairly obvious things in the British Museum. I don't want to charge anybody who's from England with ignoring this, but um, what you, what most recently has been in the news, for example, is African art activists stealing art objects from European museums that were initially, in their view, stolen from different countries in Africa. And that that is in part simply to call attention to a European idea that they could, that they could travel the world and take the treasures that they wanted to have in their museums. And so the conversations that we had as part of that search, which informed, you know, it's, it's a, it was a trick question in certain ways, pretty obvious ways, but informed who we chose to hire. And, and for those of you who are on the edge of your seat, wondering who we hired, it was Aneta Alexandridis, who I highly recommend, um, who's a classical scholar, who um, worked among other things on human animal sex on Greek faces. <laughs> and the, at that time, the classics department, which we had to coordinate our search with was only white men. And to have her present this material to this room of white men and then discuss it with them soberly later as we um, acknowledge that she was just a fabulous scholar and challenging every imagined vision that they had. Well, probably some of them knew about the Greek vases. So let's, let's, let's grant them that. So that it, the ability to discover new ways of understanding the world, yes, absolutely, that has driven me, even as some of the jobs that I've had have been enormously challenging because of politics. Because of course, academia, like every place else, has political scenarios and strife. So I gave you the happy story and I'm not gonna tell any of the bad stories. Thank you very much. Um, I'll pick up with Professor Schwartz where he left off about the, the idea of like the vaccinations and COVID we were talking about, who gets those. And um, I, I noticed today you're, you're very passionate about your teaching and I know you've won many awards for teaching. And I wonder how this past, um, well, almost, almost 12 months now, uh, teaching in COVID times, how that's been for you and how you view kind of teaching and, and keeping in touch with your students in these difficult times. Okay, Zoom teaching is teaching. And people who make excuses about it are making a mistake. If you bring your energy and enthusiasm to a, the Zoom classroom, it works very well. I had not only the best evaluations I ever had, like almost a perfect, but I also had some of the best work. One of my own children who went here noticed said, the reason you get such good work is the students have nothing else to do but work. This quality of teaching, the hierarchy of who's the best teacher and who's the next best just, just replicates itself on Zoom. 
Uh, you adjust, just like I. people adjust to the fact we're not going to be immortal, right? We adjust to the fact we, if we live here, we can't go to the ocean. Zoom is just another condition. I, I, mean the, I mean, the pandemic is just another condition of life that we live with. We didn't make these rules, but we have to do the best we can. And I am impatient with people who are telling me what they can't do with Zoom. The, what you need to do is figure out what you can do. Are there differences? Yes, but can you fix them? Well, some yes, some no. Uh, everybody, in this, well, several of them know I was a very regular, right, bringing students of my own to Rose, as well as interacting with the students there. Can't do that on Wednesday dinner. I'm known to go to student activities, go watch their soccer game or their theatrical performances, or they're playing the contrabassoon in the orchestra. I can't do that. So that means I have to figure out what I can do. So we can have informal soirees at night where we just get to get, invite the class to come in, anyone who wants to, and we talk about anything they want to talk about, sort of like this. So I think that I'm the same. I think I'm giving my absolute best I, I can. And is it as good? It's as good as it is. It, 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 there's no, you don't compare it with what, it might be any more than you compare the lake to the ocean. Uh, you say this is the conditions. We didn't make them. And we make, to quote uh, Shirley's great friend, Seamus Haney, we try to make hope and history rhyme. That's always my goal. Okay? To make, we want to do the best, possibility, opportunity, teach the best you can. And I find there are tricks that I've learned to make Zoom teaching better. But I also, because the one thing I do regret is that the students don't get to know each other. The best students leave the room together after, say, my seminar on Joyce, which is twice as big as it should be this year. Uh, they go to have coffee. They talk about Ulysses. They meet at Starbucks. In fact, I tell them to do that, and they do it. Here, it's harder to get students together. But there are tricks. You can assign oral reports instead of to one person to two, two people. I mean, one of my tricks for which I'm known, Shirley may have heard of this before, I said, I have what's called APP, Attendance Preparation and Participation. I'm known for that. And what I do, when students come to the class, I take two of them and I send them out into the hall while I'm calling the roll. So they have five minutes to prepare some sort of a three-minute presentation. And I usually do it by twos. It's very hard to do that. This I can't do it. So, but I try to do something else. And I actually think, and this is sort of editorializing, there's a lot of whining about how bad, how hard it is to teach on Zoom rather than proactive doing what you can. I mean, do I like to grade papers on, uh, that are sent to me over to, I, I no, I can't, I don't, but I have to learn how to do it. it takes me six times as long to grade a paper uh, on, on a disc, but you know, it's hard for me to do that. But these are the conditions we have, and I'm going to stop now. But I feel passionately that this that we should teach the best we can, whatever the conditions are, and it can be done. I mean, do I want to go back to teaching? On, on, on sure, of course, I'd rather be in the classroom, but that's not my choice at 80 right now, or 79 and three quarters. Surely, sort of along the same lines, just the idea of kind of like adjusting under this new reality and, and teaching, um, especially uh, 
during pandemic times? Uh, is there, are there any kind of unexpected challenges that you've faced or, or ways in which actually uh, kind of acclimating to the, to the new conditions has shaped your teaching? Well, the challenge I face is a challenge like um, everybody who has roommates, which is to say I have two other people in my house on computers and sometimes the connection just goes. So that's the most awkward thing when you're really excited about a point you really made and then you suddenly realize I, I froze. You can't hear a thing I'm saying. Right. Uh, I guess I got a reboot. <laughs> but it's 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 in lot it isn't fun for me i like seeing people i like humans as humans rather than people represented in little boxes the little boxes bother me i have occasionally gone for kind of socially distanced walks with a few students just to break out of that but it's right now kind of winter maybe people notice the temperature outside i don't know it bothers me <laughs> but the you know, but the other element of that is the, the shift in modes of understanding how we present knowledge from, you know, I, I'm not going to do what Dan does and say how long I've been teaching, but it's been a while. When I started as a graduate student, I was very excited about my IBM Selectric. And then I got a K-Pro2, which was had 64K memory. Everything I did had to be disks that came in and out constantly. Um, the time Dan is talking about the Tarek machine, it had eight inch disks, eight inch floppy disks. They were ridiculous. The technolo technology after technology vanished, you know, platform after platform became useless. Ways in which you were, you know, imagining that you stored all your knowledge forever, gone. You know, just absolutely superseded by the next thing. LPs to cassette tapes to MP3 to where are we? Somewhere in the cloud. Um, so that that business of communicating with people feels similarly like I don't know. And I have to say this, frightening as it is, if we are going to live like this forever, I think some some teaching is going to be like this forever. I think it is an adjustment to forms of communicating ideas that, you know, I still want to be in a seminar room, you know, watching people's faces, body language, slouching leaning forward, all those things are really helpful and more difficult to see on a screen. Yeah. I still, you know, I met with I met with my class today. We had a great discussion. I really enjoyed myself. So it's still possible. Those are good points. Uh, and I, I just add one half sentence to that. I've done a lot of walking with colleagues uh, and with graduate students. You know, I've been, well, I invite them over. I mean, we wear masks and we try to be safe, but I found that uh, I'll walk in any weather, so it does, that doesn't bother me. And I get George or Laura to come and to my, my closest friends come over and we walk a little bit. Well, we'd actually like to open the floor up to um, our attendees today. Hi there, I'm Darla. I was just curious, so like you said, you're currently director of women's studies, or you formerly oh, cool. were? I was just curious, how is that? Yeah, like, how are you still involved? Like, how have you seen that kind of play out on campus? What um, different events or just what's its application here on campus? It's hard to say what anything is right now, I have to admit, because it's like, where are we? We don't know. Um, the the deaf, different evolutions of that program have had a lot to do with who's the director, which is to say attention to um, there was a time when Shelley Feldman was the director and she's a sociologist working in Bangladesh. So attention to international political and sociological issues were dominant when she was a director. 
There was a time when Amy Viorejo was a director. Um, and just to parenthetically saying, when I was director, I hired her and I'm hoping she comes back. But, you know, so that, that business about media and sexuality was more dominant. Jane Jeffer works a lot with um, political issues about women in work. And so I anticipate that that will be part of what happens or what we, what we see again, once there are events, as you may or may not know, the university or certainly the Arts College has said no events, no visitors, no talks, no nothing for the time being. And we're hoping that that changes. So I've seen, I've seen many different shifts in, um, when I was director, one of the things that I did was organize a conference on, on women in revolution. You know, so women around the world coming and, and doing things, both our artists and writers and politicians. Anybody else want to ask a question? Somebody put a question in the chat, which I assume goes to both of us. What is one of your favorite classes you've ever taught? Yeah, what my favorite class is the class I'm teaching at the time. To me, a class is a community of inquiry. And I think of a class almost like a team, getting people, what I think I'm best at is getting students to work together and commit. What I want is students to commit, not just to the material and not just to me, but to each other. So I don't really, I mean, I don't have a favorite class. I mean, I have classes when I look back 53 years where I probably got to know some students for a lifetime, but um, I like every class I teach. I, this sounds equally because it's about what or how I can bring them together. I have no patience with people tell me, telling me this was a bad class this term. Well, if it's a bad class, it's my responsibility to make it a good one. And so I think, learning the interaction between students so that they get to know each other and learn from each other is what's exciting. So I have to say no subject that I teach is more favored than other. It's the, what it, for me, teaching is very much part of forming a community to which students commit and work together to learn and to fulfill their own intellectual curiosity and enjoy watching other people grow. I, and and to the, learning is not a narcissistic activity; it's a community activity. I don't have a single I don't have a single answer either. So that the the pleasure again in a very similar way is staying in touch with people over years, That's getting right. to know people through a classroom environment that then becomes an ongoing conversation about where they go and what they end up doing. I've had undergraduates who became professors, and I've had undergraduates who became lawyers, and I've had undergraduates who ended up working for hedge funds. So, you know, in, in each of those cases, I know where they went and what happened. I don't always know, but I enjoy the idea that you have started a conversation that can go on for a long time. I would add to that too, and I totally agree with you. There were a faculty member, at least in my early days, who thought the only measurement of success was whether they went to graduate school. I don't feel that way at all. The measurement of success is whether they live fulfilling lives, the lives that are satisfying to them and contribute to the community. Being as you've been in academia for so long and seen so many students, what is something about how the college experience is structured or imagined that you would like to see change? Well, I'm gonna jump in and, and answer quickly that one of the things that of course, Cornell is wonderful students, some of the students that I used to see, and I don't know if you still feel this way, I don't know if Cornell has just gotten better about it, 
um, would indicate that they were under terrible pressure from their parents to perform in a certain way because the parents were paying for it and reminding them about it all the time. And so what you need to know here is that my daughter is now a student at Cornell. So I, I, have, I am trying so hard not to do any of those things, which is to say that that sense of college as a place where a student can explore and investigate and determine for him or herself or themselves as they might want to describe it, what most drives them, what most fulfills them, what most satisfies them, where they want to be, that that sometimes it seemed to me was was tampered with by these, now, now that I see the tuition bill, I do get it, I have to admit, but was tampered with by the ways that they were expected to go directly into careers. As a humanities professor, I think people should all be humanities students, but at the same time, my daughter is interested in plant science. So it's not like I'm saying everybody has to be a humanities scholar. It's just everybody needs the humanities. Every student needs the humanities. Uh, what Charlie refers to a little bit is the, the, the career orientation of some of the students is uh, more directed than it used to be. Uh, people used to, we had, used to have twice as many English majors as we have now. And the, the half of our English majors, if not more, are double majors. There are people coming here with the idea that they want a career. There was a very interesting book called Excellent Sheep by a guy named Diversowicz. And uh, he was, a, and, and he, I actually responded to that book in a number of public places, in Huffington Post and in a book that I wrote, uh, How to Succeed in College and Beyond, which was, uh, but the idea is that education is, Shirley said, should include exploration. Everybody in there should have one course, even if you're in a, in a very rigid program, at least a year, if not a term, in which you do something entirely different. You should do really take chances and you shouldn't just be limited to your major or to even your college. I think there's more of that in some ways at Cornell than there used to be because some of the programs like ILR, for example, allows for more electives. Yeah, I think this. I think partly. I think the students are, are actually have gotten better. When I came here, the students who were captain of the volleyball team or editor of the newspaper were not students who made A's. It was generally conceded uh, that you couldn't do both. And partly, what makes it possible to do both is the time spent on studying is a little bit less. The internet helps. Right. And the fact that you don't have to type you, I used to type papers. She surely mentioned that I was typing at three in the morning. I was typing on the register. I was so tired. In other words, the pay, I had worn out the paper. But on the whole, I think, just finish this one, is the students are better than ever. They're committed and I, they're a privilege to teach. <laughs>